Father, we thank you for what you have provided for us so richly. Uh, Your word is just replete with wisdom and insight and words to guide and things to avoid. Uh, Father, as we continue to learn about these Israelites, we had asked that you would fill us full of that wisdom and where they were successful, Lord, help us to mimic them. And where they were failures like we all are, help us to avoid their mistakes. And Father, we'll trust in you to bring us to full maturity. I know that it took Israel 40 years in the wilderness to get them to where they needed to be. And we pray it wouldn't be 40 years for us. But Lord, according to your will, bring us along, mature us, and use us skillfully in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. This chapter 33 is a story about God's grace, just reaching out to the people. The people were, they were blowits by any stretch of the imagination, and it was a test for them at this particular point. Remember, they had just gotten done being judged by God for making the golden calf. Moses had broken the Ten Commandments. He crushed them. And he did not think the people to be worthy of that. The Levites came up and they pulled the sword and they killed all of those who were continuing to be involved in the worship and in the sexual revelry that was taking place, the uh, drinking, the libations, everything that was going on. It was something that was not in keeping with God's people. And so they're coming off of that. And here we have God talking to Moses telling Moses what is next. And it says in chapter 33, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. So the first thing here, God has this pursuit of the promised possession for the people. He wants them to pursue what he had promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of these guys were examples for the Israelites, and they remembered these promises. And this was to fulfill the promise, first of all. Secondly, God will send an angel ahead of them. God goes before them and protects them, provides for them, watches out for them. Of course, all the Israelites, we know that they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, but God sustained the entire community out in the middle of the desert, somewhere between one and three million people, as we know previously from the book of Exodus. And there were six nations or people groups that were to be cast out in order for the seventh people group to come in. So you had these six heathen nations, six nations that were after the flesh, six kingdoms that followed the way of the world. And then you have this one kingdom that comes in that belongs to God that is to take over 
those six days. Now, we know that the number of the Antichrist is 666 and that there are six days in which we are to labor and on the seventh day we're to rest. So if you look at it from that standpoint, you have these six nations, these heathen nations, but you have this one nation that God is setting aside. And whenever you see these numeric examples, you just want to pay attention to them because they come up over and over inside of Scripture. And then it's a land of abundance, land flowing with milk milk and honey and that really is just a metaphor speaking of what the land looks like if you know that there's milk and honey what do you know you know that there are cattle in abundance right for cattle to be in abundance what do you have to have pasture land that is all green probably something like ireland if you guys have ever been to ireland it is just beautiful green there all the time or up in uh, the area of Montana and Wyoming during the uh, spring months up there early spring it is just beautiful green and so that's what the land looked like at that time and it's flowing with honey if you have a lot of honey there what do you have you have honeybees if you have a lot of honeybees what's necessary for honeybees you have to have flowering plants everywhere and so this land was a lush land. The first time I went over to Israel, I looked at it and I go, it's pretty dead. You know, it's, it's not very green. And there used to be forests over there. And through the centuries, these forests have been burned and cut down. And they are restoring it. Now, if you go up to the area of Dan, up in the uh, northern reaches, they have these uh, kibbutzim or kibbutz that you can go up to up there. And there's these large avocado groves. They are growing also these large sections of trees. When I was there several years ago, we had run across them, and there would be pine, there would be tamarisk, there would be all kinds of trees, and they would be out in the middle of nowhere covering acres and acres and acres. And I looked at them as being a gardener, so to speak, and I, I said, they're too close. You gotta, they had so many. I thought, you've got to separate those things a little bit so that they can grow. Well, as a result, this last year, they had these raging fires because of these terrorists going in and setting fires. And they now have forest fires over there. And the land is just, it's just teeming with this greenery once again. But it has been under a curse for a couple of centuries. And so it became desolate, especially in the area. If you go down to the Dead Sea and Jericho, it is just dirt or Masada. It is just dirt. But God is going to, in the future, he's going to restore that land. And he's telling his people this land with these people, the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, it is a lush and green land right on the Mediterranean. God goes on to say in his word, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Well, what does that tell you about God? God is going, I'm fed up with you people. That's what he's saying. Now, I would never want God to turn to me and say, I am so fed up with you. I might just destroy you. And that's where these people were. So discipline was coming here for disobedience. There are several things that they had fallen into. In Exodus chapter 15, because there was no water, what did they do? Complain. They turned to Moses and said, did you lead us out here so that we might die of thirst in the wilderness? And so they were complaining, they were grumbling against God and against Moses. And then secondly, in chapter 16, because there was no food, 
they were grumbling again. We're going to starve out here. What's the deal, Moses? You lead us out here, one to three million people, and we're all going to starve. And so what did God do? God said, well, you're going to have food. Tonight you will eat meat, and tomorrow you will have bread. And he sent the quail in. And that's the first thing that they ate. And then the next morning they had manna. And they walked outside their tents. And what they say? They said, what is it? You know, if you see something laying on rocks, and, you, and God says, eat that. And you go... What is it? You know, I'm supposed to eat that. And God provided that for them for the next 40 years. And so they grumbled there in Exodus chapter 16. Then in Exodus chapter 17, again, because there was no water, they grumbled against Moses again and against God. And then in Exodus chapter 32 that we just went through, Moses was not around. They didn't hear anything from God. So they built this calf this golden calf and Aaron lied about how it came to be and so they were just blowing it left and right in the modern day vernacular as I demonstrated last week or the week before it was face in the palm time for God going oh you guys what are you why are you complaining after all that you have seen this is a lesson for us no matter how good it is or no matter how light our trial Somebody is always going to be complaining. That's why God said, don't, don't complain. One of the things about a missionary adventure, short term or even long term, is you get perspective. You go somewhere either where the floods have taken out entire households, a hurricane has come in and twisted huge pine trees, 50-year-old pine trees like they were matchsticks just twisted them around i don't know if you've ever seen how a tornado would do that to trees or if you go over to you know the far east over there and you see the squalor that people live in and animals in and out of the houses and living on boards it helps us from our perspective over here to be appreciative of what we have and yet we will still complain you know, if it's not traffic, it's the stores. If it's not the stores, it's the cost of things. If it's not the cost of things, it's who's in power in politics. If it's not that, I mean, it's because we get sick during Christmas. I mean, you just lay it on. We all complain, and God just says, don't. Don't complain about anything. And that's one of the reasons why God was just so upset with these people. So they were grumbling. They were promised protection. And they were promised guidance, but they were not promised the personal presence of God. See, that's one thing that all of a sudden they realize, oh, I think we've made a mistake. In verse 4, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment... I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now ornaments are things like earrings, bracelets, necklaces, rings on your finger. These were important in their society. These are things that they had gotten from the Egyptians when they left. And so if they had a nice gold bracelet, they'd have it on. You know, it's like they would dress up. There's prosperity. It's all good. God's in control. He feeds us. He gives us water. Everything's wonderful. And it looks like we're going to a promised land, right? Because they had heard the promises as well. But God said, if I'm with you for even a moment, I might kill you. And they're going, what? What's wrong? It's like they don't even realize what's wrong. But then they start to go, oh, wait it. 
Oh, man, we have really blown it. So what they did is, and today, if I transferred it to today, you wouldn't be standing in front of your closet or going to your drawers and looking for, okay, what matches today? Or you wouldn't be going into the sink in the mirror and going, okay, what's wrong here? What's wrong with this picture? And you're fixing it. You're, you're doing everything. Or putting on the makeup, whether you're a guy or a girl, putting on the makeup. You just, you don't do it. You know, you are in a state of being humbled. And this was something that was very common for the Jews to do. All through the Old Testament, you read about putting on sackcloth and ashes or walking in a way that is humble before God. And the Jews took this to the nth degree. The leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, like, for instance, if they were fasting for some reason, they wanted to humble themselves before God, they would allow their face just to become gaunt. They would lose so much weight where the bones would show, and the people would think, oh, they're so holy because they're not eating. Look at them, how they serve God. And they would go out in public just for that purpose. And God said, hey, when you're fasting, don't let anybody know. Put bro cream on your hair. You know, they had bro cream back then put bro cream on your hair make yourself look good put on your good clothes but you don't have to tell anybody that you're fasting don't do it just to get your reward and god says verily i say unto you you have your reward already and so these people were genuinely touched they realized that they had made a mistake they were in the habit of putting on the sackcloth for instance There are several examples of this in Job chapter 16, verse 15. He says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust, which means he took this horn and he put it in the dust or in the ash of the fire, and he probably put it over his head and over his shoulders, and he was going around in a state of mourning when he was afflicted. It's repeated in Job chapter 42, verse 6. He says, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And so when somebody was completely grieved, there was no way to console them. They would put on a rough, like a sackcloth. Imagine wearing something like a gunny sack or camel hair, uh, something that's a little rough. Uh, The camels were up at the uh, horizon, North County up there. And some of the fur can be smooth, but it can be rough. Can you imagine wearing something rough all day long? Like, for instance, a wool sweater. Put a wool sweater on with nothing underneath it. And does it get a little itchy? And sackcloth is a little bit more than that. Imagine going fishing and getting a gunny sack with the fish in it. And that type of material, that's what you would be wearing. Or burlap, that type of thing. Also in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1, when he was going to rebuild the walls of the city... It reads there, now on the 24th day of of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. So they were in the habit of doing this. They wanted to make sure that they were humbling themselves before God, that nobody would look at them in such a way like, well, don't you look good today? Nobody would be looked at in such a fashion. And the whole community of the Israelites got involved in this. And they felt that God's presence, because God said, I'm not going to go with you because if it just takes a moment, I could kill you. When they saw this, they go, well, you know, even these gold and these silver things that we're wearing and our fine clothes that we have on, they are not worth or in comparison to the worth and value of having God with them. This reminds me of a song that we used to sing, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds and nothing I desire compares with you. How many people know that song? There's a few of you that know that song. And, you know, it's 
It's a beautiful song that we sing, but this comes also from Psalm chapter 19, verses 9 through 11. And this is referring to the word of the Lord. Of course, we know the word of the Lord is Jesus Christ. It says here, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward and so being with god is the most important thing and these israelites were demonstrating that by getting rid of the gold and the jewelry and the rings and the necklaces and just humbling themselves before god going on in verse 7 of chapter 33 now moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away calling it the tent of meeting anyone inquiring of the lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing in the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And this is, this is a great example. Joshua is a young man here. He's probably under 20 years old. And he's hanging out with Moses. And he was like the guard at the tent. And nobody was going to mess with anything around that tent. And he was standing there. He later became the successor to Moses because of his faithfulness in such a young age. I would to the Lord that all of us would have realized at a very young age to follow God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And our reward would be much more. And I know it's all in God's timing, but it's usually because from our perspective, we just don't want to. We don't want to follow God that way. I mean, look at all the stuff we have to give up. I I want to live a little bit, you know. I remember witnessing to somebody when I was about 20, 21 years old. I worked as a waiter at a restaurant, and I was witnessing at the time. I would go to these waiters and waitresses, and I'd tell them about the gospel, and I'd tell them about the Antichrist, and I'd tell them about what's coming in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And one time, right next to our restaurant was a Denny's. And so afterwards, about 12 o'clock, we went over there, and we started talking about these end times, and their mouths were just opening. They're going, really? This is going to... I said, yeah. I said, but you've re- got to remember, if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to fall into their judgment. And you want to avoid that. And so this is the gospel. Confess with your mouth. And I gave them Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then they looked at me and said, but I have to give up so much. And I said, yeah, it's not like that. The Lord will remove some of those desires. And the other ones we have to work through. But it's because of our desires, that's what leads us astray. And we have to bring those desires under control. And so this is a problem that is common to all of us. But what happened here is Moses, this Shekinah glory would come down and it came down in the tabernacle and it would hover over the Holy of Holies. It also came down in the temple. The glory of the Lord came down and was over the temple when it was built 
in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it also was on top of the mountain. When Moses would go up in there, into the mountain, there was a cloud that was up there. And in Luke chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was up there and Moses and Elijah were up there and the three disciples were up there, this cloud descended. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. The only thing we can relate it to is like fog. It comes in like fog. We don't know if it's phosphorescent. We don't know what it is, but it's like this cloud. It's called the Shekinah glory of God. And Moses would go and separate himself from the camp of the people, and he would put this camp some distance away, or this tent some distance away. He wouldn't be in the middle of the people to listen to the Lord. He'd get away. And this is kind of a principle for us too. Moses got away to hear God. Is it hard to hear God when you're at the mall? It's hard to hear anybody when you're at the mall, right? You're hearing yourself grumbling. Well, these people, you're kind of grumbling going around because it's so crowded. I, side note here, a neighbor of ours, he went up to Disneyland. Have you ever been to Disneyland during Christmas? Don't. Just don't do it. He was up there, just crowded. You can't even hear yourself think up there. Well, this idea that Moses gets away, he wants to be alone with God. And so we have to do that. I once met a person, a a fellow believer. They had this basement. And inside this basement, they had this large closet. And they put just a hanging curtain-like material like this over it. And inside, they had a couple of candles. They had a pillow in there, and that was their prayer closet. And they would go down in the basement, and they'd get alone and just pray to God and they say well that was my prayer room that's where I would go if you've read that story about Vanya remember Vanya the Russian Russian soldier who was uh, martyred for his faith and God did several miracles with him if you've ever read the book uh, you remember what I'm talking about if you haven't I recommend it get the book Vanya but he was uh, persecuted by his commanding officer and because he would not recant his faith he would not turn away His commanding officer said, that's it, you're going to solitary. And solitary confinement was, from what I remember of the book, it was a small little cubicle that you would be in. It it would be subject to the weather and everything out there. And it would be a place of torture. You'd be isolated from everybody, and it can do things to you psychologically. But Vanya turned to his commanding officer when he said, you're going to solitary. And he goes, really? I get my own little prayer room for the next X number of days. He was excited about it because he'd be all alone with God in that prayer room. How many of us would look at it like that? Oh, I got to get away with God in prayer. Oh, such a drudgery. I hate doing this, you know, going in there and just spending this time because I usually fall asleep. I can't even stay focused. And here's this guy, Vanya, who ends up being martyred for his faith, saying, What an opportunity. I'm all by myself. And so God would meet with Moses in this place, and he would do it alone. It was a place of worship as well. The people who were outside, they would stand at their tents. They would see Moses go in. The Shekinah glory of God would come down, and they would involve themselves in worship of God because they would actually see the presence of God or at least his glory that would show up there. And our God is a personal God. He wants to meet with us. Now, when we think about God meeting with us, if, if you're like me, you know, you, you'll spend some time in prayer and you're asking God and you put out your request and you give him praise and honor for who he is. And then you, you meditate on the scripture if you can. You think about that. And you're just, you're just going through a few things. And I, I'm, I'm kind of typing with my hands because that's how I do my prayer time. 
I sit at the uh, computer and I close my eyes. I can type without looking. And so I, I just, I type my prayers is what I do. And, you know, I'll keep my eyes closed and I'll just think, what else can I pray for? And I'll type it down. And I kind of put it into sections, things like that. And so I, I spend time with God talking to him. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll get something that I think God's saying to me. Now, I don't hear something like, Bill. You know, I, I don't hear that. It's just, okay, yeah, well, maybe I'll read this. And I, I just go through. But in, in, as another side note here, one of the things not to do, and this is part of the occult practices, is try to empty your mind and let God speak to you. That's kind of dangerous because you open yourself up to the spiritual realm. And sometimes it becomes difficult to discern what you're supposed to do. This is what meditation is about. And it comes from the Eastern religions. Know what you're going to say before God. Say it, at least head in the direction. And as you submit yourself to him, he will help guide your prayers as you're praying. And it just starts flowing as you're waiting upon him and the spirit starts moving inside of you if you're sitting there all anxious like i gotta get this prayer time in because i gotta get to work on there's so much i have to do and you're trying to focus it's like you have to divest yourself of all of that and you have to wait on the lord and say lord you know i'm going to wait on you i'm going to lift up these people and he'll bring things to mind to pray for people or or things or items and it's all good and so moses got away but he would talk to god differently than we do He would go into this tent, and there was probably a stool of some kind. And he would sit down, just kind of lean back. The kind of glory of God would come down, and then there's God right there. I believe it's a Christophany where Jesus Christ appeared in the Old Testament. He may show up meeting Moses as he comes into the tent. He may show up as Moses sits down to pray and shows up and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Moses, how are you? And he talks to him like face to face. Now, Scripture, it tells us about that, how Moses was able to sit down with the Lord. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, it reads, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And this is where Aaron and Miriam were complaining against Moses. And as a result of her complaint, she became leprous. And Moses interceded and said, Lord, please take away this leprosy. And and God said, Send her outside of the camp for seven days, and maybe she'll learn not to complain. And so that was a judgment upon Miriam, who was also a prophetess of God. She was judged for her complaining. Discipline came her way as a result of this. But it is our responsibility to get alone with God. Once we get alone with God, we can hear him. We're reading in his word. We're meditating on it. We're offering up prayers. This is what God wants with us. This is what Moses did. And Moses, I'm sure, would have long conversations. If you were talking with God, how much time does God have? (laughs) He can stay there for hours, right? 
hours and hours and hours. How long do you think Moses wanted to find out what God had to say? He probably was in there for hours. The people outside, they could say, my knees are hurting from worshiping out here. When is he going to come out? You know, this is getting tiresome out here. And Moses is going, really, God? That's what, wow, this is, well, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you like to sit down with Jesus Christ and go, okay, I have a question. He wouldn't say, I know what your question is. He would listen to your question, and he would give you a response, and you would probably be, we would probably be blown away. Go, whoa, that's deep. You know, something just the depths that God would take us if he gave us a Bible study. We would just be in awe, and that's what Moses had. Moses saw him. That's God right there. And And God would say, I believe it was Jesus, Jesus would turn to Moses and say, Moses! How you doing, buddy? It's good to see you. I know the people are complaining. But take courage. He'd probably grab him on the shoulders. It's going to be okay. He'd get behind. He'd rub his shoulders. Oh, Moses, just keep with the program, man. It's going to be all right. You're going to do okay. Things are going to turn out really good. Just don't worry about it. When all this comes to fruition, you don't know how many people you're going to influence. And so he was a real encouragement to Moses. And why did Moses have it? Have that fellowship with him? He needed it. He needed it because what he was going to go through, right? It's like Paul. He had the affliction in the flesh, the thorn in the flesh. Why did he have that? Because of the great glory that was revealed to him to keep him humble. Well, Moses was already a humble guy, Scripture tells us. But he needed the presence of God to handle these millions of people. And he was with them every day. He didn't get away from them at all. You know, the leaders in our day and age... They are pretty much sequestered from the people. They call our White House in Washington, D.C. the White Prison. Because you go there and everybody is making sure you are always accompanied. You are never alone. Wherever you are going, people are with you. You don't drive yourself. You don't fly yourself. You don't walk alone. You don't take the dog somewhere alone. There's always somebody there. And that somebody always has a gun. And they're always watching out for you that if anybody comes in, they're going to take care of you. That's what Moses needed. He needed God and his presence there. But he was one who interceded for the people directly to God we do the same thing therefore we need the presence of God in our lives as well and if we don't spend time with them it is not going to help us one iota we want to make sure that we are spending time with him talking to him in a personal way developing that relationship with him now one thing is for certain Moses had a really tight relationship with God and have you ever been around kids and kids come in and they say I'm bored. Have you ever heard that? I, I listen from time to time to this guy by the name of Dennis Prager. And uh, he's on the radio. He is a Jew. He's like a rabbi. He's writing a commentary for the entire Old Testament. He's not a Christian, but he's full of wisdom. I'd love to sit and listen to him. And he says, uh, occasionally when it comes up, if a child comes up to you, he said his own sons, when his sons would come up to him and tell him that they were bored, he would turn to them and say, you're boring. It's not that you're bored. You are boring because there is so much. Is there any possible way that we can actually be bored in our day and age? There is no way we can be bored. If we are bored, we are the boring one. There is so much that we can do, so much that we can be involved in. And if we're just sitting around like bumps on a log, that's ridiculous. We don't need to 
do that. And especially as adults, we should never be bored with anything, especially spending time with the Lord. We can do that anytime, any place. And if the Lord speak to us, it's not going to be a boring adventure. Okay. So this is an example that Moses has set for us. Now, Moses makes an appeal here because God says he's not going to go with them. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Who, know, who knew God more than Moses? No one. Moses was the guy, face to face, and he goes, it's not enough. I need you more. It's not like the needy girlfriend, the needy girlfriend that hangs on the arm of the guy. I just need you. And the guy's going, get off of me. You know, that type of thing. Moses was just saying, God, I, I need more of you. And it was a genuine need because he saw his inability and he had to trust in God. So he goes, I need more of you. You tell me to go, but you don't tell me who's going to go with me. I can't go alone. And so he's interceding for the people on their behalf, as well as his own behalf. Now here, an appeal is made by Moses, and I listed seven things in this appeal. The first one, he made an appeal to the headship of God. It says, you will send, or who will you send with me? I need somebody to guide me. So he makes an appeal to headship. He's not going out alone. He's not just making things up. He wants God to be right there in order to guide him. Or an angel that will be right there with him that he can commune with. That's what he needs. Because he says an angel will go with you. An angel will go before you. He needs that instruction. So he makes an appeal to headship. Then he makes an appeal to relationship. Because Moses says, you know me by name. We're like friends. Now Moses was a friend of God. He would sit down and talk with them. You know, if Moses was upset, he would go tell God, you know, I'm just so angry at these people. And, you know, I shouldn't be angry because I know I'm subject to the same failures. But, you know, what am I supposed to do? And God would give him some encouragement. That's what God would do. So he makes an appeal to headship. He makes an appeal to relationship like I need your relationship with me he makes an appeal to fellowship he says i want to know more about you teach me your ways now how long hey, i was talking to somebody about uh, being involved in a trade and i said you know it'll take you five years to really become proficient at something to learn the ins and outs if you're in a trade it, it, about five years now if you catch on a little faster that's good it'd take you a couple more years but or a couple fewer years but I said, it's going to take about five years. And then I said, you'll get to the master level and probably, or you'll become like a journeyman level in probably 10 years or so. Uh, now, I know the electrician's union, I think theirs is five or seven or something like that. And that's good. But I mean, really become skilled where you come across all these different problems. And you, you, rarely does somebody who's been in it 20 or 25 years come across a new problem. So they are masters in their field. And they know what they're doing. And Moses, you know, he's been with God now a couple of years. Not a couple of years, maybe a couple of years here that we're getting to. Certainly several, many months. But And he's led the people into the wilderness. And it's taken several months for them to get out of Egypt. So it's a, maybe a year or two that he's been with them. And he goes, I want to know you more. So how long does he need to know God for the rest of his life? 
And as he knows him more and more, he becomes more of a master of the skills that God has imbued him with, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the people. So he appeals to headship, relationship, fellowship. Then he appeals to ownership. He says, these are your people. Now, God says to him, take those people you came with, you know, they're your people. And then he appeals to God and says, no, these are your people, the ones you have brought out. And he says, you own them, basically. They are yours. So please come along with us. And so those are four things right there that he makes an appeal to. Now, I I want this to be personally applied. We want to have this appeal with God, that we go to him and we express to him, I want you to guide me, God. We also say, you know who I am. He knows each one of us by name. You know, he knows the number of hairs on our head, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. He knows everything about you. He knows the number of blood cells that flow through your veins. And also this idea that we desire to know him more and that we belong to him. We can turn to God and say, I belong to you. Please guide me for your name's sake. Please encourage me. Please imbue me with your spirit. Empower me with your spirit to do what you have asked me to do. And it goes on in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. So he confirms with Moses that he's going to remain. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So he continues this appeal here. First, it's headship, relationship, fellowship, ownership. Then he appeals to leadership. He goes, guide us or do not send us. Now, we do this a lot. I'm going to go do something for the Lord. If he doesn't send you or open the door, it's probably not a good idea, right? If you just say, I'm going to do this, and you go just recklessly you're going to cause a lot of damage out there. But if you feel the Lord's calling you, well, go do it. But if you feel the Lord's calling you and you say, I'm not going to do it. Talk about missing the blessing. Is it going to be hard? Yes, it's going to be hard. Is it going to be good? Yes, it's going to be good. So he's appealing here to leadership. Please guide us or don't send us, right? He goes on and makes another appeal to kinship. So, so far, you have headship, relationship, fellowship, ownership, leadership, and kinship. He says, how will other know, others know that you are pleased with us? In other words, we're like family. You, we are your people. You are our God. We belong to you. We are the people of God. And so he makes this appeal. He continues with this appeal. And then the last one, he says, we are on a different ship. Where does it say that? We are on a different ship. We don't belong to the people of the world. They will recognize that we are unique, that we stand out apart. The world should know that about Christians. The world should know you stand apart. You are different. The world, or the Bible calls Christians, calls you, and he calls me, peculiar. You're peculiar people. Why are you peculiar? Well, like you pray. Well, don't a lot of people pray? And you go to church. Yeah, don't a lot of people go to church? Well, you, you do stuff too. You help people. Well, don't a lot of people help people? Well, but then you get together and you eat. Yeah, we, we all get together and we eat. Yeah, we do all those things. And you like love each other. There's so many bad people out. Yeah, we love each other. What? 
that's different. That's just not right. Right? You remember the country song? You can take this job and... (laughs) You guys know the song, right? Now, if you're a Christian and you're in a job and you don't like the job, do you go up to the boss and say, (laughs) you're laughing, you know you don't go up, you can take this... You don't do that. You need to be a peculiar person. You need to go up to your boss if you're going to leave and you need to say, you know, I want to thank you for the time that you've employed me. You've been such a blessing to me and my family. And, you know, I just think it's time for me to move on. But I'm, I'm going to pray for you that God blesses you. What? You know, the world would look at that and go, I wouldn't have done that. I would have slapped him upside the face and wrote something. You Just been all upset. And we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be peculiar. People should say of the Christian, why are you always so happy? Has anybody ever said that to you? Why, why do you always smile? What is up with you? Something is just not right. Because you have this joy, this deep abiding joy that's on the inside. God is in there. And, and it doesn't matter what kind of trial you might come across. It's all going to work out for your good. And if you really believe it, if you live by it, it is going to be a model in which others can live by and others can mimic. And so that's what God wants us to do. So he makes these appeals to God. And this idea of fellowship over favoritism, they were more interested in being with God rather than going and subduing the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They wouldn't want God to favor them if God was not going to go with them. Verse 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses says, Now show me your glory. So he's asking for more. He's not satisfied. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and... You will see my back, but my face must never be seen or must not be seen. And so Moses was willing to do this. He wanted to experience God to the fullest. He had not yet seen the full glory of God. And nobody can see the full glory of God. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, that was still a muted version. If we were to see God face to face in all of his glory, we'd probably melt or burn up we are sinful and sin cannot dwell in the presence of God and so God mutes that in the person of Jesus Christ and that's why he shows up to us and we have relationship with him because if we were immediately translated into heaven we would just become dust or not even dust I don't know what would happen to us but we would not survive according to scripture God says that we would die no man can see God and live And Moses was interested. He wanted not only this relationship with God, he wanted more with God. He wanted to see his glory. He wanted everything that God had for him. He was willing to forsake everything in order to achieve this. And the Apostle Paul also mimicked this when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to this passing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith 
in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He was willing to discard every single thing in this life. He didn't want anything else except for Christ. Now, to summarize this, the Israelites, they were given direction to go into the land to fulfill the promise given to Abraham. God expressed his displeasure, said he, if he was with them for a moment, he might destroy them. He reversed his decision, at least from our perspective. He reversed that decision and decided to go with the Israelites. And then he disclosed his glory to the people. And this is the same trek that we are called to. God calls us in a direction. There are times where we are going to be disobedient and God disciplines us. But God reverses that when we show our humility and we say, God, I'm so sorry. I, I have a contrite heart before you. And he changes any judgment or discipline or he can. He doesn't always do that, but he can. And he turns that in a different direction and then eventually he will show us his glory. We are a mirror of these Israelites to, to apply this finally. If we don't spend time with God, we don't hear him. If we're not humble before him, he will not speak. If we are prideful, he will turn his face from us. These Israelites became humbled. God granted the request of Moses and interceded for the people. Those people who spend time with God, God uses. If people aren't being used very much, there can be a season where we all are not used for some particular reason. But the people that God calls and the people that spend time with God, God uses. You can tell who they are. It's not hard to discern that. You look at it and you go, oh, yeah, God, you, God's using that person. God's using that person. You can see. And it may not be huge. It may not be grandiose, but you can tell. They have this love that comes up. They don't look at the people in the church going, bunch of rotten people. You know, I, I was talking to another pastor this last week. We sat down, we had a cup of coffee. And uh, <clears throat> we were just kind of joking around. And there's a phrase out there that goes around amongst pastors. And you've heard me say it before, but it's, church would be so easy if it wasn't for the people. You know, and, and it, we kind of laughed about that. But, you know, it's like Christ's life on earth would have been so easy if it wasn't for the people, but it's because of the people that he died. And so he is our example of those who would serve in ministry. You're, just get over it already. You're supposed to just endure. You're supposed to go forward. And if you spend time with God and he opens a door of opportunity, so many people, I've seen this over the years, where people, they have this door of opportunity and they say no. It's like the door opens towards them and they grab it and they go no. And they shut the door. It's like, what are you doing? Just open the door and walk through it. And they go, no. Why? Because I have things. Well, what kinds of things do you have? Well, I have stuff. You know, I... I'm going to give you an example. Is there a game today? Raiders and Chargers, right? Now, you're not going to like this. Uh, Raiders and Chargers, what if you said, I am not going to watch the game. I'm going to go to a prayer closet and pray the whole game instead of watch it. Now, what does the flesh say? You will not. 
<laughs> right? I'm not going to miss out on those buffalo wings. I am not going to do it. I can pray any time. That's not the idea. The idea is if God calls us to give up something, we give it up, right? Like, should we give up the Raiders? <laughs> we can talk about that later. The whole point of this, I want to summarize. I, I want to close it out here. This idea, Moses spent time with God and he was willing to forsake anything. The apostle Paul spent time with God, was willing to forsake anything, considered it all trash, everything he had gained in this life, just to be with God. And if you're with God, God will use you. If you're humble before him, he will lift you up. He will the one, he's the one that will bring you honor. If you choose not to, you're just missing the blessing. Will it be hard? Yes. Are people difficult? Oh, yes. Are you going to cry because of it? Oh, yes. Are you going to be upset and mad and have every single emotion run through your body? Oh, yes. But will the end be worth it? Oh, yes, it will. So my prayer for you is that you're able to submit to God. If he calls you to do something, do it. If you're not spending time with God, spend time with God. Pray to him. Ask him for things. Moses did not stop asking. He just said, I want more. I want to see your glory. Yeah, you're going to go with us. That's all good. We're family. But I want to see your glory too. Ask him for everything you can possibly think of. And who knows? He may grant it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Moses and his example. The Israelites, how they humbled themselves. What a great example for us. Help us to do that, especially this time of year, Lord. Help us just to understand you are in control and you want to bless us. And it is by your grace that we are even here, that we are together, that we experience your fellowship and that we have your spirit. So, Father, raise us up. Use us for whatever task you have in store for us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone said?